Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is the Holistic Leadership Future of Work in Education and Healthcare podcast here. Your co-host, Jeffrey Roach. We are still missing uh, Travis. He couldn't join us uh, here today, but we are so excited to continue these important conversations. And we truly have someone very special with us today. Uh, Achiki uh, Agu is the first person in his entire family born in America. He is a Fulbright scholar, educator, business leader, award-winning nonprofit CEO, and a presidential appointee to the Biden-Harris administration previously. He's a recognized authority on the future of work, economic opportunity, and innovation. Chike is committed to an economy that creates opportunity for every family, just like America did for him. Chike is currently serving as a senior advisor at Harvard University's Project on Workforce, a senior fellow on Workforce at Northeastern University's Burns Center for Social Change, and a senior advisor at the McChrystal Group. Many of us in this field, like myself, though, have been paying attention to Chike for a while because he was, in many ways, I'm saying it, not only a presidential appointee, but a leading voice at the U.S. Department of Labor and in the entire administration uh, for his work as the chief innovation officer during his tenure at the Department of Labor. And he was the first black person to serve in that important role. He there reported uh, to then Deputy Secretary, now Acting Secretary Julie Sue, and he led efforts to use data, which we know is so important in this work, emerging technologies such as AI and cybersecurity, among others, and innovative practice to advance and protect American workers. GK, it's so wonderful to have you here. I've always been uh, admiring you and the amazing work that you do and, and just want to uh, express our appreciation, too, for your service uh, to the United States uh, in your role with the, with the administration. Jeffrey, uh, let me just say uh, thank you so much for having me and thank you for creating this space to have these types of conversations. I think it, we don't have enough of them. And so thank you for what you have, have, have put together here. I'm, I'm really honored to be here. Um, I look forward to diving in. Yeah. So let's let's unpack you a little bit more. Um, you know, you're, uh, you served in, in a really, really important role, appointed directly uh, in many ways, you know, by the administration, by the president. Um, in fact, we've seen the pictures of when you were appointed. Um, talk to us a little bit about, you know, like, let's get a little bit personal. Like, what was that experience like uh, when you received uh, that call? Because you were a well-accomplished leader before you were doing all this work. You've been an executive. But but when you received that call, what was it like? I'll talk about the day I got the call, and then I'll go a little back in time to say why that call was, was, was so important. And so I was called to be the chief innovation officer at the U.S. Department of Labor on January 7th, 2021. Uh, the day after the insurrection. And for those of you who know the, Depart the Department of Labor and where it is in DC, it's actually a block behind the Capitol. So actually, my about-to-be colleagues were locked down for 10 hours the day before watching that take place. Uh, and so when I got the call, my wife said, are you sure you want to take the role? But for me, it was kind of, um, it was, it was the, 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 the answer w w was already there. And, I, and I, I say that in terms of going back in time, you said a little bit of my background. Um, you know, my family is a very classic immigrant story to this country. My um, family is from a far and out of the way village in Nigeria that most Nigerians themselves will never see or never visit. Uh, my, hmm. None of my grandparents went past middle school, not, not, none of them. Uh, my parents were born on streets that were unpaved then and are mostly unpaved now. 
Uh, they had Peace Corps volunteers in their classrooms and what changed life for them. And by extension for me was they got golden tickets quite literally to come to the United States mm. of America to American public higher education. And they had mm. my siblings. I'm the first person in the entire history of my family born in America. And um, in the space of generation, you go from that to me being able to serve for an American, serve an American president. Um, that's a, a, a story we should be proud of. We also know by the data, it's not a story that happens very often. And so I've tried to dedicate my career to replicating what I've been given just by trick of fate for other people, hopefully by more systems and purpose and strategy. Uh, because I think it's the right thing to do. It's also the smart thing to, to, to do for our country. So when that call came, it was, you know, I remember I called my mom and, and I told her and it was something that she did. She didn't quite, she, you know, if you were to ask her when they came to America, she would have said, all we wanted for you guys, we wanted you guys to have a comfortable life, not struggle with it. We did go to school, get a good job. Uh, that was what we wanted. And, you know, they never knew to kind of think that, that the things such as this were possible. And so for me, it was, it was a very strange full circle moment. And then, you know, and then it passes quickly because at that time we're still in the middle of the pandemic. In fact, they had just started to roll out vaccines at, at that point, probably the month before. Obviously, we're in an economic crisis at, uh, at that point, which we can talk a little bit about. And then, of course, we're dealing with this crisis of democracy, which literally transpired a block down, down the street from my future place of work. Uh, and so in some ways, it was really pointy, but then also it was, we had a lot of work to do. And uh, so all that kind of came together really quickly. And as I would say, it was the hardest and best work of my life. And I'm so honored to have been able to do it. So, you know, obviously you have been passionate about all of the aspect of the work you did there your whole career. And, you know, I want to ask you, you know, because, you you know, there's a lot of people that will regularly say when we talk about an equitable workforce system, what does that really mean? Yeah. You were leading a lot of work uh, really to transform, you know, what we all know is a critical department, um, but also a system that wasn't necessarily designed for where we are today. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, your work there yeah. around economic opportunity, uh, really getting very laser focused on, you know, preparing us for the future of work? Um, if we have anything about what that looks like, let's talk about the outcome of what an equitable kind of workforce uh, and economy looks like. It's bluntly where stories like mine are not just random stories, but they're actually a predictable outcome of the system where regardless of where your family starts, you by, you know, the classic kind of work hard, play by the rules, apply yourself, can actually get to that type of economic outcome. If not for yourself, at least for your children. Uh, I think what we know by the data is there are some people in America, no matter how hard they work, they don't actually move beyond where, where their parents were. And we want to change that. That's what I think about as the outcome of, it, uh, 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 of a system. And ideally that system, regardless of race, your gender, where you were born, what your parents made, those things don't affect the outcome. Uh, as we know by the data, that's not true today. And so um, obviously, you know, what someone once told me, um, and this is back when I was a teacher, but someone said, you know, the job of every person, every student is to make the right choices. The job of the society around them is to make those right choices as easy as possible. Mm. And I think right now, we can extrapolate that to the broader economy. Yes, obviously there's individual agency, individual responsibility, all those things are true. But also... Uh, we want to make sure that um, those are the only things that matter versus all these other factors. And so that's what I think about. So when I think about, you know, I call it kind of a future of work that includes all of us. I always say there are kind of five parts of this, and I'll try to go 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 through it quickly. We try to work at each of these at the Department of Labor. 
the first thing is um, or a question you have to answer is what is the work of the future? What is that? I know I know where you work, you spend a lot of time thinking about that, particularly in the healthcare space. But what is the work of the future? Not even you the old Wayne Gretzky quote, not where is the puck now, but where is it going to be? So this is where these these conversations on AI and all these emerging technologies come in because that will be suffuse every job. But also we know we have an aging population and things very analog in the care economy from home health care aides to early childhood to uh, all this, those are going to be, those jobs will explode over time. We're built more in this country than we ever have before. A lot through the, through the work of this administration uh, means we need welders, machinists, electricians, all those things. So what is that work of the future? Let's be really precise about that work. Not just at an occupation level, but at a skill level. What are the 32 skills that are needed to be a welder fabricator in the aerospace industry, for example? We, have, we need that level of precision. Secondly, question you have to answer is now, how do I train people for that work? And, uh, and when I say train people for that work, it's the just-in-time skills. Again, the tactical things you need to know to do a job, but also what I call the timeless skills. Things we've been doing as a species for thousands of years, leadership, communication, coordination, all these, some people call them soft skills, but we know the way you don't have them, it ain't that soft. We know that they're critical. And I know particularly for lots of big companies, when I talk to them about not filling roles, they talk about, if I just have someone with those right, quote-unquote, soft skills, I can teach them the hard skills. But we, but so how do we make sure that we're getting people with those sets of skills and using new ways to deliver them from apprenticeship models to really mm -hmm. powerful applications of things like virtual reality. I'm, I'm, I'm from Maryland, the University of Maryland. We have one of the largest VR labs in the country mm -hmm. using that to actually teach paramedics how to do certain incisions and things like that. So how do we transform yeah. that whole enterprise? The third question we don't talk a lot about, but we really should, which is, once someone has the skills, how do they find the job that they to which they can apply those skills? In economics, mm. the belief is there's perfect information. Someone who has the skills will know where the job is and they'll just find it. Or the person who has the job will find the person with the skills and that's that. You and I both know that doesn't happen. Yep. And there is this lead. Some of it is information asymmetry. People just don't know because the majority of jobs in America are not posted. They are, they are found through social they are found through social capital and, and and social networks that people who are underprivileged don't have. Yeah. Also, we know we have barriers up. At times, we have arbitrary degree barriers. I'm not someone who says degrees don't matter. They they can, they do, but we've got to be thoughtful. And at times, we're not thoughtful, and particularly in industry, we're not always thoughtful about what requires what type of credential. Also, we have people who have been through the criminal justice system, who have paid their debt to society, and would like to be a productive member of our country again, but we put up barriers because of, maybe because of that mistake that they made that actually don't make sense. Fourthly, when someone falls out of the labor market or they want to get to a better place, how are we supporting them? That's about mm. benefits. That's about unemployment insurance, all TANS, now all these things, but also how are we guiding them? All right, look, you just, I'm from Maryland again, in Allegheny County in Western Maryland, we closed the last paper mill in the state about four years ago. Hmm. We knew about three months beforehand that that was going to happen. About 800 people lost their jobs. That's 800 families. Um, we should be with those those 800 people. Say, okay, where where are we going to where are we going to help you get to next? We, mm -hmm. Okay, we used to say that the problem of labor, the worst day of someone's life, is when they file for unemployment insurance because they have to go into this office, say they lost their job, and then go home and tell their family and their kids that they don't know what they're going to do and they feel like a failure. And in that moment, we can't ask them to now also figure out your economic future. 
that's as a human like that that's not a recipe for success we've got to create a structure around that and then the last piece is on how to make sure that once someone is in a job that they are advancing and that they're protected paying for making sure that you're free from discrimination you have a right to organize all that stuff but also making sure that if you came in at entry you have a path to advancing to supervisor to pre to vice president and all that and we don't always have that ladder within industries to make that happen that's system that i describe what, knowing what the work of the future is, training people for it, helping them find the right job, supporting them when they follow the labor market, making sure that job is a great job once they're in there. We don't have that system in America at scale. We have pockets of it in certain places, but the work that at least we were trying to do at the Department of Labor and that I've tried to devote myself to in my career is how do we create that entire system at scale for everyone? Because to be honest, people who are well-resourced, who come from money, who uh, have, have been lucky to have life be good to them, in some ways, they have that system. The question is for everybody else. And we as a people, not just as a government, but as a people need to create that, not just because it's the right thing, which I believe it is, but also it's the smart thing because I meet too many employers who say, I can't fill this job. But I have a billet open that's been open for 90 days, 180 days. And so I always like to say the right thing and the smart thing are the same thing here, which is doing this because it makes us more competitive, but it also makes us more equitable and more just. That's really, really profound. And I want to, um, when you were the chief innovation officer, one of the things you did was you created the first scorecard. Where, um, yeah, you're looking to work on the, those outcomes so we know what's happening with, with, with workforce development. Before there was never a scorecard. And I'm curious, did that break it down by industry? So we were in the beginning stages of this when I left, and, and, and I'll really give my credit, but I'll say the idea for this uh, really came from less me, more amazing colleagues at the Department of Labor. And I was trying to make sure that we can get stuff out of their way. But the goal was a very simple one. Right now in America, if you lost your job and you want to be a welder, and you want to know which welding program should I go to learn to be a welder because I've never done it before, you don't have a lot of information to help you choose. The ideal information that you want is, all right, which program actually help people get jobs, and I want to do that one. We can't quite tell the uh, answer those questions at scale. The ideal that we'd like to do is if you think about the college scorecard that mm -hmm. the uh, education created, where you can see literally by institution, by program, here are the economic outcomes of people over the last 10 years. Not a perfect system, um, still more that they would love to do with that, but we don't have anything close to that on the workforce side. And so, and so that's the goal. The goal would literally be, be able to say, um, if you think about the nth most degree, uh, the nth most version of this, Ideally, you could say program by program, here are the economic outcomes that did this. Or you ideally would be able to say the reverse. Hey, people who became welders in Indiana, they went to these 10 programs that were really successful. But right now, if you're, again, a worker and you're in a tough economic time, you have to figure this out yourself. And so word of mouth, and it's who lives near you. And we want to try and put that data in people's hands. And for me, when I thought about this, this is very useful for companies very useful yeah. for nonprofits, but I think about that worker who's trying to figure out where to go next and we got to put this information in their hands. And so we were working with a number of institutions to test out the, really the first version of that. And the goal is mm -hmm. now, how do you go bigger and go bigger? And, uh, um, and as you learn in government, things never move as fast as you would like them to. Uh, that's that was definitely one, one thing I learned, but the hope is we build on that so we get to what we're talking about. Every worker knows if I want to go to this profession, um, here, here are the programs that I can do. And let's even go a step further. Hmm. Uh, the Fed Bank of Cleveland and um, Philadelphia are working on, can we give you a path? 
So again, mm. let's say you are a short order cook and you want to be a welder. Let's look at the economic data and show people who've made this transition. Here's what they did. Hey, they actually couldn't make this in one job. They got, they, they got job A first, did a certificate, and then they did job B, and then they were able to be a welder. Okay. To be able to have that path and then be able to say, and here, where it, here, here are five places that are hiring for job A, and here are two community colleges who are giving this certification. That's the ideal. Again, if you think about someone who is in distress, you've got to make it as easy as possible. And you know, the, the analogy that I love um, uh, from uh, Matthew Desmond, who wrote the book uh, Eviction, who wrote the book uh, Poverty by America, he talks about what it's like to be in poverty. And he says, think about if you've ever had someone you love go to the hospital. They call you, say, so-and-so is in, is, in, is, in, is in the emergency room. Think about how frantic you were. Think about how discombobulated you were, so on and so forth. And he said, for someone in poverty, that's every day. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. we're going to help that. We, we actually have to go above and beyond to make sure that the quote-unquote assistance that we want them to get is easy, accessible. Not because they're dumb, not because they're not capable, but because they are under a type of economic duress that a lot of us don't understand and don't experience every single day. And so we've got to go above and beyond to make sure that stuff is really easy, really simple. Because, again, in our normal lives, that's what we get. You know, Amazon makes it really easy for us to buy stuff we don't need. Why? They make it super simple. And if we could take that type of mindset to things that, frankly, people who are in economic distress really need, we'd have a much better country. You know, it's, it's interesting. I heard Matthew Desmond speak at the AAMC uh, in the fall, and uh, it was fascinating. Uh, I was so happy, you know, for the AAMC to have a speaker like that, because, you know, imagine speaking about poverty uh, to physicians, uh, medical residents. Yeah. You know, the future physicians, deans, uh, et cetera, um, because there was also a lot in his message that was um, really eye opening. Right. I mean, the idea that, you know, he even shared that when you look at the issue of poverty, there's actually it's one of those areas where politically both ends, all ends all have, you know, this idea that, well, even if they put a you know public housing unit next to where I live, no one really wants that. But yet, if we did that, it would take care of so much of what we're dealing with, with homelessness and a whole host. And so it was such an eye-opening conversation. And to your point, um, those of us that aren't in those situations don't ever have to think about, uh, you know, the challenge. And to your point, you know, it's one of the reasons why I know uh, mm-hmm. even, you know, in this administration, there's also been a very conscious effort to look at the locations of uh, of career links and unemployment centers, right? Because- okay. You know, for years, they weren't always on public bus routes. Uh, They weren't always accessible. And so all of those things are really, really important. Um, You know, I want to ask, too, because I imagine you served as, uh, you know, as the department's designee, the secretary's designee to the National Space Council. Yep. uh, Which I can only imagine must have been a fascinating experience. Some of the the coolest moments I had in the administration, I'll be very honest. It was uh, it was it it was a. I didn't quite know what I signed up for initially, but it was uh, it was really phenomenal. But let's talk about that because yeah. there's a lot there um, that I think we as a society don't always understand and appreciate. And and this was a pretty historic time that you were there, right? I mean, chaired by the first female black uh, and Indian vice president. Um, and talk about STEM. You know, for anyone that's in the STEM field, people have to really appreciate that. Uh, because it's shared by you know somebody who whose entire life 
was influenced by her mother, who was a scientist. Um, and so talk a little bit about that. I mean, what was that experience like? And, and when you think about the future of work, the future of education, you know, what comes to mind from that experience? Yeah, let me give a little background on the council. It was actually went through a few changes, which I think are, are actually, they, they impact my answer to your question. Let me talk about the work that we at Labor tried to do, and then I'll say, it, I'll, I'll talk about a cool story. Um, so the Space Council has been around since Eisenhower or Kennedy. I, want, I forget when. Historically chaired by the vice president. Um, it's at times not been as prominent in certain administrations. Um, and the vice president uh, took really grabbed hold of this as one of her many responsibilities when she came in. And she actually made a couple changes. One of the changes was the inclusion of the Department of Labor. Historically, we had not been one of the agencies part of, the, uh, of this, but she said workforce is going to be part of this because part of her vision was if you had to kind of um, segment this, see, there were kind of three. Segment one of the work is frankly a big national security issue, which is basically how do we geopolitically work with other countries who may think about doing things like weaponizing space, for example, with things like hypersonics, which are literally projectiles you could drop from the, from orbit that will move at multiple of the speed of sound that actually can't be tracked because they have no boosters, for example but can have payloads. You also have the R&D scientific enterprise of this. How are we actually building these things and using this to drive uh, American research, economic competitiveness? And then thirdly, and she would call this like space for Earth, which is how do we use the space industry to transform economic realities for people who are here? Whether it be using satellites to better track the impacts of climate change or building a, a, a workforce base to fuel an industry that's grown. If you look at the private investment since 2011, probably 5x since 2011. So this is a growing industry just because of companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, but also your, your incumbents like Boeing and Lockheed and so on and so forth, and also big federal investment. So she said the part of labor needs to be here because the work for this workforce that we hopefully will create will transform neighborhoods and transform lives. So um, when I became the designee and really started taking part, we at the Department of Labor said, uh, initially we're trying to figure out where we could be useful um, we've always needed um, scientists and what I call the white coat professions to be part of space. But for the first time, we need what we call skilled technical workforce. These are your welders, mm -hmm. your machinists, your electricians, because we're, we are building four rockets bigger than a Saturn V. Yeah. That, that when I saw the estimates, they were, we would need anywhere from 100,000 to 300,000 non-baccalaureate workers to build those things. And we don't have them. If you talk to any of these big companies, they do not know how they're how they have to fill all these bullets and all these roles. So to me, hmm. for us, this is a tremendous um, opportunity. One, because we are the Department of Labor, but secondly, those are jobs we know a lot about: <laughs> HVAC, electricians, welders, uh, non-destructive safety testers. We these are things from actually you see in advanced manufacturing all the time. They have different names, they are different realities due to space versus working on the ground. But we know those jobs well. And so what we created, what we committed to, was a couple of things. One was um, the Department of Labor, as many of its responsibilities, we create what are called competency maps. We basically mm -hmm. map out the skills for particular sets of professions that people like edu like higher education or workforce development, nonprofits can use to do their training. So we've always had a historic aerospace competency framework, which has all the skills required. We said, we're, we're going to update and tweak that for space so that anyone who's mm -hmm. trained workers will have a kind of a source of truth for what those jobs should be. And we actually sourced that based off um, about 20 to 40 high priority professions 
that, that the industry needs. The other thing we did, and this is one of my colleagues, Manny Lamar, who is an amazing um, uh, 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 public servant who still works there, is um, we, we, we launched a, a, um, an apprenticeship accelerator. Basically creating uh, that, that we basically in a certain jurisdiction would bring together all the necessary stakeholders to think through how they can leverage apprenticeship to fill some of these jobs. Uh, so that's what, what we committed to, super proud of it, and got to announce this commitment at the Space Council meeting last year, in actually late 22, in Houston. And I'll tell one quick story, which is before this Space Council meeting, where literally we go up on stage at, at, at NASA in, in Houston, vice president's in the middle, we're all kind of around, each one representing a different department. Beforehand, the vice president um, uh, comes uh, backstage, shakes hands, as she, as she does, and Bill Nelson is the administrator of NASA came and said, ma'am, uh, we're sorry to have you here. We would love to have you sign this door, literally this big metal door that's going to go on the Artemis module that's going to go to the moon. And signed, we all clapped. One of the guys standing next to me is a guy named John Tien. John Tien at that time was a deputy Se secretary of Homeland Security. There, uh, I cannot do his whole resume. This is a great American, uh, top of his West Point class, White House uh, fellow Rhodes Scholar, uh, currently in the Army, managing director at Citigroup, all the National Security Council, the National Security Army, amazing guy, and he, and he, was, a, he was a number two at, at Homeland Security. So after the vice president signed it, he said, he raised his hand and said, so the rest of us are going to sign this too, right? And I hope he doesn't mind me telling this story. And I think that, that our NASA minders kind of kind of did what I do with my child when they ask for a cookie. I was like, they're like, yeah, 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 but later. Because I think they thought that we'd forget. So after we have the Space Council meeting, we're all leaving because all it's, it's a Friday, so a lot of us have flights to go to different places. We're walking back past that same door, and John Tien says, no, 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 we're signing this. So they bring markers, and they give me a marker, and I'm like, I, I, I have no business signing something that aliens might see, you know, but I haven't, you know, but you can go on my Instagram, and it's really a picture of me signing this door that's going to go on the audit module. Um and, you know, ideally one of the coolest experiences, but going back to your first question, if we think about what an equitable economy and workforce looks like, again, me, the grandson and son of people from a village, that even people in Nigeria I've never been to, I've never heard of, yeah. getting yeah. inside a door that's going to go to the moon. Uh, we want that not just to be, to be possible, but probable as an outcome yeah. of our economy. That type yeah. of economic job. And so I was really proud to work on that one because it's a growing American industry that we should compete in. You're filling jobs that need to be filled. And if we're strategic, we can actually get people who've been historically locked out into those professions. So you have this kind of triple win if we're strategic and if we're targeted. And I think you can take that little kind of case study to so many other sectors of the economy, healthcare, advanced manufacturing, uh, teaching. And I think you could have those same wins, uh, but it requires foresight, it requires focus. And I think the space industry is just one example. Hmm. That's a fascinating story. And so everyone got to sign it? Everyone signed it. And, well, some people left wow. early and didn't get to sign. But I, like, my flight was later. And so, again, he's handing me a marker. And I'm like, are you for real? Are you think you're going to let me sign this? Um, but it's a very cool, you know, I'm someone who believes, you know, there's debate about the space program. She's that where we should focus on that, we should not. One of the things that I always say is if you think about historically, so many scientific innovations have come from the space program that had nothing to do with space. The yeah. artificial heart, Velcro. Um, one thing that's really interesting about space, that's actually a great place to do stem cell research. Because mm -hmm. of the zero G 
environment, you actually more the stem cell survive as, as, as you create them versus being on Earth. I didn't know that until I actually started doing this work. So if I'm talking about biomedical research, or, or, or if you're thinking about um, one of my colleagues, uh, Azinde, who's on, who, who, uh, who has worked at NASA for a long time and, and was part mm-hmm. of the uh, a space council in the White House, she's working on in-space manufacturing. So wow. ideally, if you can actually, instead of building a whole thing, putting it on a rocket, send it in pieces, and then build it in space with robots and things like that, you actually can send a lot more stuff up at a single time. So if you're thinking about putting on, for example, permanent uh, installations on the moon, for example, we're going to need to do things like that. If we think about now a Mars mission at some point and other planets, you will need to yep. do some of those things. And so there's so many spinoffs, uh, innovations that affect our, our earthly economy that I, I've always been. Uh, and then also, you know, I'm also a Star Trek fan and all this. And I do believe uh, our nature as a species is to uh, reach for more. And I think in the problem is we help a lot of, we can help deal with a lot of current problems that we have. You know, I want to ask you, your entire career, you've really been one of those leaders that has very much been about bringing industry and education together to be a solution provider. Um, Community colleges have always been an important piece uh, in the backbone in many ways of of the country like unions. Um, When you look at, uh, you know, the future of education. Um, this administration has certainly prioritized community colleges, probably in a very different way. And I'm sure Dr. Biden is, is responsible for that. Uh, she, uh, she, she is a big spur to that, no question. But uh, during your time at the department um, and, and really between labor and education, because at least to me, it looked like a true yes, partnership. We, deep partnership. True, true prioritization uh, there, which I think is is phenomenal as the son of a community college graduate. Um, what do we need to do as we look to the future to really ensure yep. that our future of work and our future of education are really hand in hand? Because uh, some would suggest we're still we're still you know there are times where it's like here and we're here and vice versa. What do we need to do to really make sure? Because this is such an important yeah. kind of time in our history. It, it, it's very right. Um... You're right about the partnership. You're definitely right about Dr. Biden. Um, you uh, you asked a big question. I'll say a couple of things. I think um, if I think about what I would want it to look like, you know, in late 22, I got to spend a week in Switzerland. Uh, and what Switzerland has created, and again, in some ways a very unique country, but it's, there, are, there are lessons that we can learn. They have created a system where the walls between quote-unquote vocational education, non-baccalaureate education, baccalaureate education in the workforce are pretty porous. We'll cycle between those systems regularly. And I will tell you, uh, I spent time there, it is something that, that, is, that is something that the Swiss are very proud of. The apprenticeship system, their system of higher education, the workforce, and the fact that it's all going kind to of swims together, they are very proud of it. It's not perfect, they have some challenges, but they're really proud of that. Um, that's the type of system that I want here in, in the United States. Uh, one of the things that people don't know, you know, again, if you think about higher education, we spend most of our time talking about the Harvards and the University of Michigan's in the world. The majority of American undergraduates go to community college. The majority of American undergraduates go to uh, schools that accept over 80% of applicants. And so when we think about particularly community colleges, um, we cannot overlook them the fact that they have to be at the forefront of this strategy because one, 
They're everywhere. They're like libraries. Every community has one. Every, and, every, and if you go to any person in America, they can tell you what their local community college is. That's just the nature of the beast. So they have brand and they have reach. Secondly, this has always been my belief. Um, this has been my experience, I should say. Um, the community colleges are worth their salt. Know that partnership with, with industry is indispensable. They can't, it's not, a, it's not, it's, so I see the, the ones who are worth their salt, they do it, they do it really, really well. Um, now, what do we need to do to make this go forward? One, I, I, you know, I, I, part of the reason that we put folks on this is we put in resources. The Department of Labor has given hundreds of millions of dollars to community colleges to align with the industry to create jobs. We have done that for, uh, and that, that, that is an indispensable part. It's not the only thing, but you can't say that doesn't matter. I think secondly, we need collaboration between industry and higher education. And I say to a degree that is uncomfortable for both of them. Right now, a lot of the collaboration is I have an advisory council at the community college with some industry people. They tell me every semester what I should be doing or not doing. That's not enough. What yeah. you need is an industry has a need. They come to the community college and say, here's my need. Community college says, okay, I think I can build this for you. And what I think the community college has done as well, you have weekly collaboration. I have watched people from industry sit and watch a class and say, okay, that was good. But I don't, this top, topic A should actually be topic C. Because in my yep. business, you need to understand topic B before you do that. That level. And then they do it again. And then ideally, um, and, th and then ideally, um, after they begin to get workers from, from, from that program, they begin to do it again. And once those workers come out to the specifications of what the industry needs, the industry should make it super easy for those workers to make it into a job. You still see sometimes workers will learn what they need to, but because of at times arbitrary HR screens, clunky hiring processes, they don't end up in the billet. And so that should be the bargain. Higher education are, um, builds what's needed. And, and industry takes what's needed, and the two of them yeah. work uncomfortably close together to make that happen. And we don't see that enough. Third piece, which is um, outcomes. Hmm. And knowing what happened right now, you heard me say previously, we don't totally know at scale what happens to people who come through higher education or workforce development. Because by the way, for community colleges, the fastest growing part of a community college enrollment is non-credit bearing work. These are certifications and things like HVAC, um, machining in Maryland, cybersecurity. My wife and I, we actually start, we, we, we started a scholarship at our local community college mm. for students doing non-credit courses like certifications because they actually get no support. They actually can't do Title IV or loans and things like that. Um, but that's the fast result. But we don't know what the outcomes are at scale because, of, frankly, data is distributed. Um, we've never quite done this before. It's not how resources track. Um, but we need that because again, ideally what you would say is programs that are doing well grow programs that aren't either need to be better supported or they need to not be there and mm -hmm. we run the whole cycle again. So that's a big answer, but I think we need to realize what community colleges are and the value that, that they have, which frankly, a country like Switzerland, Germany, Austria, they get, and the outcomes yeah. they get from that system, by the way, reflect that we resource it. We make the, the we, we make the industry and hire it collaborate, make or frankly is help them realize that they should. And then lastly, we track the outcomes and then we run the whole cycle again. And and to your point, you know, what you just described is really the effective uh element of an ecosystem. Correct. 
uh, which, you know, I mean, as somebody that's been in, on the industry side and someone that's worked in higher education uh, as well, uh, to your point, you've got to be fully integrated. I'm, I'm so encouraged when well, I hear well. more and more stories. I know uh, on the West Coast, uh, there's a healthcare system there called Yuma Regional Medical yep. Center. Uh, they're doing some amazing work with Arizona Western College, right. where actually they are completely connected at the hip. Uh, you know, they have a leader at the college that reports to the presidency of the healthcare system, and they have the uh, the COO at the healthcare system reports to the president of the college. Shared governance, you know, totally working together, and it's it's amazing and, and encouraging when you see those types of uh, of relationship. And we're hearing more and more about that, which is great. Um, obviously, in interest of time, I think we could go on for so much longer. There's so many exciting things to talk about. I want to ask you, um, you know, to share some just some closing thoughts yeah. about you know, anything from a future work end, uh, all the work that you do. And then also just make sure you just share where, where individuals can connect with you and find you. Oh, sure. Um, the thing that I spend most of my time thinking about is from a macro perspective, and it's, I keep it pretty simple, um, is in America, we have a lot of work that needs to get done in the infrastructure space, in the semiconductor space, in green technology, in the care economy, in healthcare more, more broadly a lot, millions of jobs that are unfilled. You can see the estimates at, at times as high as 10 million job openings, depending on how you look at the figures. Uh, when I came to the administration, it was three people looking for every one job. Now I think we're close to the 1.25 to 1.5. But in certain industries, that's like four to one. It's like five mm -hmm. to one. And so we have a lot of work that needs to get done. And we have a lot of people who need work. We can, we can name them. We can geographically map them. These are folks of color. These are women. These are immigrants. These are people who live in rural communities. These are people who just don't come from means. Um, and taken together, those are two very daunting problems. But when you put them together, they solve each other. Mm. And so the question is, how are we going to bring them together? And, and the answer is that it, it won't just happen on its own. It requires us to answer those five questions we started with. What's the work of the future? How do you train people for it? How do you make sure the work and the worker can find each other? How do you support people through that whole process? And how do you make sure that when they're on the job, they're respected, protected, and dignified? That's the bridge between the two. And I would argue, I think that is our biggest economic challenge as a country and even biggest challenge as a country. Because as you think about this, whether you're in semiconductors, which is not just now an economic issue, a geopolitical issue, uh, as you think about healthcare, as uh, I believe with, the, with, 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 with our aging population, and even as we think about political polarization, I have always believed that when people are economically distressed, it's easier to divide them. Yeah. And bluntly, if we can make sure the less people are in that distress, I think we have a more unified country. And so for mm -hmm. me, that's why I've devoted my time to this, hopefully my career to this. And I think it is doable and solvable uh, because, you know, I use the old John F. Kennedy quote, uh, our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by men. <laughs> And I, I very much agree with that here. We, it's, it's always a problem that we created, and therefore it's a problem that we can solve. And, and, and it, it's what keep, keeps me hopeful about it. And, uh, and conversations like this keep me hopeful about it. Yeah, absolutely. And oh, in terms of where to find me, uh, that's a great, great question. Uh, I am, uh, uh, you can find me on Twitter at C-A-C-R-A-G-U-H. Uh, you also can find me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm the only Chike Agu there, I promise you. Uh, and, um, I write, uh, and, uh, blog on a number of platforms. And so feel free to get, to get me on LinkedIn or, or, uh, or Twitter or, or whatever they call it now. 
Um, but really, I thank you for making space to have me on this conversation. It's really important. And Jeff, just thank you for, for, for what you do. Thank you as well. And, and uh, thank you, obviously, for all of your service uh, to our country. And, and as, uh, as I know, you know, someone you know in the administration always says, too, um, you, you know, hopefully there will be many more following you. Uh, as, Dr., as Dr. Rachel Levine always says, yep. you know, she says, she always says, don't pay attention to me. I want to make sure there's other people following me exactly. um, in, in, in that work. And so thank you so much for, for all that you've done and, and, and that you continue to do uh, because really our, our nation needs you uh, when it comes to workforce and really thinking about the future of work, future of education. So I uh, want to encourage uh, all of our listeners to check out GK's work, truly transformational, um, and uh, certainly connect with him. Uh, if you're on the industry side, on the education side, absolutely as well. GK, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.